rearranged Christ Community Church. We are uh, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, Bo sent me a picture yesterday of uh, of the new arrangement, and my first thought because I like being comfortable and I don't like change and new things worry me and what if what if what if. So my first thought was, why did he do that? <laughs> but then, but then my second thought, or shortly thereafter, was, you know, that's perfect for what we're going to talk about today. Um, the idea of us being uncomfortable, the idea of us being out of sorts, out of place, uh, in a sense, uh, strangers. And so if you feel strange this morning, that's okay. And so to, to compound that, we, uh, I used to teach at a school where all the, the men wore ties. And so I've accumulated maybe a hundred ties over the course of, of teaching school. And so we've moved that bag of ties more than once. I thought, that's a waste all of them sitting there. But, but it's sort of uncomfortable to wear a tie here. And so... As we spend time in First Peter over the next many weeks, I'm going to wear a tie every Sunday just as, as a visual reminder for me and for us of what we talk about today um, as, we, as we kick off this idea of First Peter that um, he's writing to, as he says, aliens. He's writing to people that are out of place, that are out of sorts, that are uncomfortable. And so every Sunday when you see me dress differently than I normally dress wearing one of these things, let it be a tangible reminder that what undergirds what we talk about, whether I mention it or not, is that he's talking to people that are uncomfortable. And this is sort of uncomfortable because I'm not used to wearing ties. So let, so let, well, thank you. So let that be a reminder. And we are going to begin this morning. several weeks in, in the book of First Peter. There is an outline in the bulletin for you to follow along. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 5 if you want to be turning there, and then we'll get back to chapter 1. Shortly, Linda has a, a bulletin. I encourage you to, when those read through the announcements, but also there's an outline in there if you want to follow along. Um, again, as we sit in an uncomfortable place, um, none of us are quite as feeling as, as alien or as foreign as a young nine-year-old girl named Cynthia Ann Parker. You may know that name. Uh, she was part of a frontier family in the 1830s. Her family uh, acquired several thousand acres in central Texas, and they moved there. And when she was nine years old, her family was uh, attacked by Comanche Indians. She witnessed the torture and murder of several of her family members and then was kidnapped uh, and spent the rest of her life uh, living as a, a Comanche Indian. There were a couple of times, several years later, when she was grown and able to make decisions, when she had an opportunity, um, safely and freely and by her own volition, to leave the tribe and go back to her own people, and she chose not to. Uh, newspaper accounts from several places in Texas were couldn't quite understand that, couldn't fathom how how this girl, this American, could choose to 
continue to live uh, with a, a fairly barbaric Indian tribe. It didn't make sense to them or really anybody else. Uh, and yet she not only continued to live with them, but she married an Indian and, and had several children, one of which was one of the greatest war chiefs that the Comanche Indians had ever seen. Was she American or was she Indian? What was, what was her identity? And I wonder at the age of 20 or 30, wherever she was, wherever she would have gone, if it's some way, in some way, some form or fashion, she felt like an alien, felt like she didn't belong. Certainly where she lived the rest of her life, her, at least her, her skin color would have been different enough that, that she knew she was different. Had she gone back and, and lived with what family members were left at the age of, say, 25 or 30, she'd lived over half of her life as an Indian, doing things as an Indian, learning their language, speaking their language, learning their culture, being a part of their culture. My guess is wherever she went, at some point in time, the thoughts that ran through her head was, do I really belong here? What is my identity? Am I an American frontier girl or am I a Comanche Indian? And yet all of us in, in some form or fashion probably find ourselves in that situation today. Where do I belong? Am I a Texan or am I a North Carolinian? And, and when I go back to Texas, it even feels sort of strange because that's not where I live anymore. Some of you, it's, it's where we've only been here three years. Some of you, are you a northerner or are you a southerner? Are you a, a Florida beach bum or are you a mountain man? <laughs> For those of us who are married, we, we marry into this family and we, we now have these two sets of parents, two sets of relations. And, and no matter who I'm with, there's this draw or this pull from this other side of the family... I think, do I, do I fit in better with the Harringtons or do I fit in better with the Adams? Do I belong with the Lescalites or the Bihars? Do I belong with the Carringers or the Taylors? Where do I fit? What's, what's my identity? And for you kids, you experience that more than spouses because you, you started out with these two families and some of you identify with your mom's family more than your dad's family. When you're with one, you maybe wish... You know, I, maybe you don't say this out loud, but I like my mom or dad's family better. That's okay, that happens. Where do we fit? What's our identity? And that doesn't even bring into the equation the fact that those of us who have put our trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, we have a, a whole different identity. And that comes into play in First Peter, but... But the beginning of 1 Peter, he's, he's writing to people whose identity is unsure. And so I think this book helps us because what he's doing is he's writing to these people who are, he says, aliens. They're not where they should be. And this book is about how do you live when you are uncomfortable? How do you live when you don't know who you are? How do you live when you're not sure you're in the right place? 
And how do you live when you're not sure you're in the right place when things are difficult, when things are uncomfortable, when things are hard? And so while this book was written almost 2,000 years ago, it's very applicable today because we all fit into that category of sometimes wondering, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Am I where and who God has called me to be? And so we begin by looking at the end. If you look at chapter 5, verse 12, Peter at the very end, he, he tells us why he wrote this story because or this book, because throughout First Peter there are these two parallel ideas that run side by side. There's the idea of God's grace, and there's the idea of our responsibility. And we need to be careful not to focus too much on one or the other because they go hand in hand. If we spend all our time thinking about God's grace and not realize that it actually leads to something and actually leads to action on our part, then we've missed something. But if all our focus is on what am I supposed to do, what am I supposed to look like, how do I follow these commands that are in there and forget that God's grace not only is the motivation and the encouragement and the empowerment of that, then we'll ultimately, be failed, we'll ultimately fail and be frustrated. So these two ideas run hand in hand and we see that at the end when Peter tells us why he wrote. He says in verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this, referring to all that he's written, this letter is the true grace of God. Not just the parts that talk about grace, but the parts that talk about our response to that grace. That is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. These two parallel themes, God's grace, our response to that. At the end, he says, stand firm, but he uses other words. He, he commands the readers to love one another. He commands them to be holy. He commands them to submit. There's all these actions that are one and the same. Peter says, I want you, readers of this letter, I want you to look like Jesus. And so that requires you to stand firm. That requires you to love one another. That requires you to submit. That requires you to be holy. And so as we begin back in chapter 1, in these first two verses, he lays a a foundation for us that, that will allow us to hopefully wrap our minds around what does it mean for me to be a recipient of God's grace and what does it mean for me to respond in, in holiness and obedience. We read in, in chapter 1 these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
Let's pray together. Fathers, look at Your Word. I pray that You would open it up to us, that You would open up our ears, that we would hear well, our minds that we would understand, and ultimately, God, our wills that we would be like You, that we would obey. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He begins, Peter, one of the apostles of, of Jesus, one of the twelve, wrote this book. We're not exactly sure when. There's some people say as early as the late 40s to as late as the early 60s. They don't put dates at the top of their letters back then. At least it didn't seem that they did. We don't have a, an idea. It seems that he wrote from Rome. Again, when that was, we're not sure. But he wrote to a group of people that were scattered in what's modern day. And I forgot to show the map, didn't I, Phil? Oh, and he still has it, and it seems to be working. We've been having problems with recording, and we hook two things up to that computer. It doesn't like it, but it seems to be working, we think. So he's writing to people scattered. This is modern-day Turkey, and those were Roman provinces, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus, and Cappadocia. Mainly the northern part of what is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor back then, um, Paul, in his missionary journey, spent most of his time in the southern half of that landmass. And then across the Aegean Sea is Greece, and then across the sea from that is, is Rome, where the letter would have, would have come from. Thanks, Phil. But he uses three words to describe his readers, his recipients. In the New American Standard, he calls them aliens, scattered, and then after the list of the names, chosen. What's interesting is, is the word chosen comes first in, in the Greek. I think a lot of versions put it after that for stylistic reasons. It helps make sense with the next phrase. But Peter starts out by saying, I'm writing to you who are chosen. And then that word alien is, is a word what's called in apposition, not opposition, but in apposition. In other words... He's saying, these are the same thing. You're chosen and you're aliens, and those fit together really, really well for you. And I imagine if I'm reading this letter, knowing that I have been probably someone who has been kicked out of Rome and either forced or maybe volunteered to settle some new colonies for the Emperor Claudius, somewhere between 40 and 54 A.D., that they're scratching their head going, yeah, right, Peter, I've been chosen to be scattered or to be an alien, and that feels really good. Thanks for bringing that up. Thanks for reminding me of that. And yet what we see is, is that Peter means a lot more than just, oh, there was this pagan emperor that chose you to do something someone else that, that chose you. That loved you enough to reach down into time and space and get you where you are today. So, chosen. There's this description of and this idea of the sovereignty of God over your life as we read at the beginning in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. Before any of this that we see was created, 
He had His mind on you and He picked you out and says, I want you to be a part of my family. You were chosen. But it's not just that spiritual idea of God chose you to be part of His family. Because again, that other word, you're an alien. You're somewhere where you don't belong. That word alien means someone who's in a place different than where they normally live. It was often used of Roman civil servants who were sent someplace to represent the Roman Empire. They were aliens for a brief time. Not only were you chosen in a spiritual sense, you were chosen in a very real, physical sense to be where you are, even if you think that's not where I'd like to be. And that's convicting for me, because there are a lot of times when I think my life may not be going exactly the way that I wish it would go. And Peter's writing to these people who are hundreds of miles from where they lived, where they should have been, possibly by force moved to this place. And he says, that's okay. God chose you to be here. He chose you to be an alien. We can never separate God's love for us from our circumstances. And we like to do that. We, we, we look at life and we go, God surely can't be involved in this. Surely this difficulty, this trial, this hardship, I don't know where God is, but He doesn't seem to be involved. And yet, the beginning of this letter, the foundation of all He's going to say, and these people as we read through First Peter, if you read through it this week, you know they were experiencing fiery trials. They were experiencing hardships. They were experiencing difficulty. They were experiencing persecution. God says, you were chosen to be where you are. And that's convicting and hard because I don't like that. I can't imagine John and Danny thinking we were chosen to go through this trial, this hardship. John and Francis and all they've been through in the last year, can't imagine that God chose us to go through this hardship. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And on and on with the rest of us sitting out here, we can name situations and circumstances where we think God didn't choose that, surely. So how were they chosen? Why are they aliens? They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, before the foundation of the world, He it's not just that he looked through time and said, yeah, this is, I see how it's going to be. In his sovereignty, in his wonder, and his grace, he places us in places that we need to be. There's no surprise here. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands going, ooh, I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't mean for them to end up here. And that's hard sometimes for us to fathom and hard to stomach at times. The good news is both of those things are true. We talked about a minute ago. We're chosen into His family. We're part of those of us who've accepted the death and resurrection of Christ. 
were part of that abundant grace that He lavished upon us that Paul talked about. And because that's true, then we hopefully can have an easier time accepting where we are, the situations we find ourselves in. But also, not only by the foreknowledge of God the Father, but by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Again, I think there's two meanings going on here. It was the Spirit who applied the work of the cross to our lives when we trusted in the death and resurrection of Christ. We're changed by the power of the Holy Spirit from death into life. But also, and remember, chosen and alien, those two words Peter wants us to know are the same thing. You are where you are. Peter's readers were where they were by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, where you are is where God wants you to be so that His Spirit can continue to conform you into the image of His Son. The hardships that we go through aren't by accident. They're not to necessarily punish us, though there is discipline when we disobey, when there's sin. But often the hardships of the Christian are so that the world gets a glimpse of what the Spirit is doing in and through us to make us more like His Son. If we for once think that my life shouldn't have to ever be as hard as Jesus's, then we've missed the point. He wants us to be like His Son in all things. The world seeing us treated poorly and responding in love in grace, in service, in humility, and ultimately sacrifice for others. Are you aware that God wants to use your current situation for His glory as He conforms you into the image of His Son? And that's hard. I don't like that, personally. I wish He'd use my comfort and my ease for His glory. So why? The middle of verse 2, he, he did that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to or in order that we would obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And there's this, this allusion back to Exodus 24 that the Jews who were reading this who became Christians would have thought, there's another place where obedience and sprinkling happened. That gathered on the mountain, God had given the Ten Commandments and part of the law. And Moses came down and said, this is what's going on. And all the people said, we will obey. And then Aaron took the blood of a lamb and he sprinkled it on the law and on the people. There was this combining of obedience and the sprinkling of blood. And yet Peter changes something here that's extremely important because we know as we read through the Old Testament that those people that were gung-ho about obeying the law, yes, we'll do it, we promise, within days were grumbling and complaining and whining and moaning and disobeying and rebelling. 
No matter how sincere they were, they couldn't do it. And that blood didn't help them any. And yet Peter says, God chose you for the purpose that where you are, you would obey and be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. This, this different blood that is not just this external cleansing, but an internal cleansing, as Ezekiel talks about in chapter 33, that Jeremiah talks about in chapter 31, this idea of a, of a new heart and a new spirit. This idea of, of an internal cleansing that necessarily leads to a change of life. And God chose us for that. He chose us that we would obey. Because you see, when Jesus walked the earth, people saw Him completely and perfectly obeying His Father's wishes. They saw Him serving even when He was treated poorly. They saw Him humbly submitting to the Father's will. They saw Him sacrificially loving people. And the people of Andrews and the people of Murphy the people of Marble and Topton and North Georgia and Robbinsville, they need to see Jesus doing those exact same things today. We're chosen for the purpose of obeying so that people can see Jesus. And that idea of sprinkling with the blood of Jesus not only empowers us to do that, but encourages us because I know when I'm very gung-ho and say, yes, I'll do that, and then I stumble and fall, I'm reminded that it's not just the bloods of, blood of bulls and goats that have cleansed me, it's the blood of Christ that has permanently cleansed me and given me the motivation and the desire and the power to get back up and say, you know what, I, today didn't go well, but tomorrow... I have yet another opportunity to be Jesus for someone. To obey, to love, to serve. If you'll notice also, all of God did this. God the Father, God... The Son, God, the Holy Spirit, they're all involved in our choosing. It was the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And they're all involved in our choosing of where we are today. Again, God the Father is not surprised at your circumstances. The Spirit is using those circumstances to bring God glory. And the cross of Christ continues to allow us, as Peter says at the end, to stand firm. That when we fail, we remember that we're forgiven, that we've been cleansed. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, allow us to be in His family and allow us to be where we are right now, today, in the circumstances where we are. For His glory that other people might see Him in us. See, our, 
our circumstances don't relieve us from either being made in the image of God, nor do they relieve us from bearing that image to the world. Our circumstances don't ever relieve us from being the image of God and bearing that image of God to the world. What Peter's saying, and what he's going to continue to say in this book is, there is no excuse for disobeying God or for doubting His goodness. There are no circumstances in your life that come upon you that should render you unable to believe in the goodness of God or unable to walk in obedience to the truth. And that's what this book is about. It helps us see how to do that. First and foremost, by reminding us of the truth and the beauty and the wonder of God's grace. And then showing us how that necessarily leads us into looking like Jesus Christ. My hope and my prayer is that as we travel through this together, that you would be encouraged, that you would be challenged, and that you would have hope. Because I know that many of you are in a place where you scratch your head sometimes and wonder what God's up to. My prayer for us is that as we spend time feasting on God's Word together, that we would know His goodness. And that we would, through the power of His Spirit, begin to look like Him individually and as a body. I I don't know why Cynthia Ann Parker chose to remain an Indian as opposed to an American frontier girl. But I do know that each of us have a choice every day. And that choice involves asking ourselves, am I going to be part of this world and this culture that, honest to goodness, that we sometimes we fall in love with. This is a wonderful place to live, especially around here. Are we going to fall in love with the world or are we going to fall in love with the family of God? On the surface, it's like an easy question. Well, of course I'd choose God, but you know practically day to day that's a hard choice. Because we're comfortable in the world. Heaven's this, and the spiritual is this weird place that I can't sometimes grab onto. I can't touch. I can't feel. But each of us every day get to make a choice. Whether I'm comfortable or not, whether I feel like an alien or not, where am I going to live? And who am I going to represent? Let's pray together. Father, we have indeed been blessed abundantly beyond all that we can think or imagine, Paul writes. Thank you for your word and and for Peter's faithfulness. I know many of us, like Peter, could look back on our past and go, I'm really not worthy 
to communicate grace and truth to a world because of what I've done and who I've been. So God, I ask through the power of Your Spirit that You would encourage us through this letter that Peter wrote. That we would, like him, be bold enough to proclaim to the world, this is the true grace of God. And that we would stand firm in that, despite what the world says to us and how the world pulls us and how the world tempts us to want to be different. Father, as we go into the world this week, encourage us and challenge us and give us opportunities to be Jesus to someone. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you are dismissed.
key word. It was a B. Yeah. Doubting his goodness. Doubting his goodness. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Y'all have a wonderful day. Thanks.